haven't even said anything yet. <laughs> so it's an honor to be here. I think it was here about a year ago or so and have another very powerful, encouraging message. And I usually say that James 1.19, or James, yeah, 1.19 says be slow to speak, but it doesn't say speak slow. So I go fast and I'm going to cover an awful lot and we're going to be really taking a look at uh, Christianity and a defense for it. Some of you know me a little bit, if, especially if you were here yesterday for the men's breakfast. But for those of you who don't know me, I'll go over my background very quickly because you might not know me from a hole in the ground. So that's me, and that's a hole in the ground. So <clears throat> I only put that up there to warn you I have a very, very dry sense of humor. But I was raised in a Christian home, and you can see very clearly that that is a Christian home. And uh, it's taught to believe the Bible from cover to cover. I went to public schools all the way through high school. Uh, when I graduated, I went to a Christian college, John Brown University in Arkansas, to study mechanical engineering. I got a degree, but I became more interested in physics, and they didn't have a physics major. So I left there, went back to Wisconsin, where I live, went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater to get my degree in physics, and that's when my world changed quite a bit. Went from a small Christian college where my engineering professors opened up every class in prayer to a large state university where my physics professors did not open up in prayer. Maybe they forgot, I don't know. <laughs> But they were all evolutionists, and some of them were atheists, and they were telling me that everything I believed was wrong. And that made me feel very uncomfortable to be surrounded by those PhD scientists who I assumed that they had a lot of evidence for what they believed, but I realized for the first time in my entire life that even though I knew what I believed, I did not know why. I could not defend the Christian worldview, so God put it on my heart to start looking into things. So... I've been looking into things for 38 years now and founded a ministry called the Starting Point Project. It's all about our starting point, which we'll be discussing here this morning. Along the way, I was also invited to be on the board of directors of a group called Logos Research Associates. This is the world's largest consortium of scientists who are Christians and creationists. The founding member, Dr. John Sanford, he's from Cornell University, He's famous for having invented something called the gene gun. It inserts genes into the DNA. He's a brilliant scientist, fam worldwide famous for that. Uh, he was an atheist for much of his life. Very strong Christian, very godly man, very humble as well. And then there's Dr. John Baumgartner. He's a PhD geophysicist. He's built the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. <laughs> and even secular geologists will use this model to see how plates of the earth are moving. So just... Brilliant guys. So there was those two guys, myself, and three other board members. Uh, as smart as these guys are, and they are brilliant, if they were here with us this morning, they'd be the first to admit out of all six board members, I am the tallest. So, <laughs> so I hate to brag about that. Actually, last November we had a meeting and they asked if I would uh, become president. So I'm honored to be president now, and I've also lost all respect for those guys if they want me to be president. But... <laughs> I get to hang around them and pick their brain and convert what they're discovering, cutting-edge science, into something we call English, which is what I'll do this morning. So we're going to be taking a look at Christianity, a rational, uh, reasonable defense. I'm not asking you this morning to just feel it in your heart. I'm asking you to think about it, seriously, think about it, especially if you're a skeptic. I'm, I'm honored you're here. There's nothing wrong with feelings and emotions, and back in the early 90s, I, I think I actually had an emotion. I was able to get through that somehow. <laughs> But uh, no, I really want you to use the mind that God has given you this morning. The world that we're living in today is basically turned upside down. You all know that it's been slowly getting worse morally over the years. It's just a trend. But a few years ago, the wheels fell off. 
And there's no shortage of issues that we are dealing with today. And it's not that any one of these issues is too difficult. It's there are too many of them. They're overwhelming the system. It's kind of like the guy on the stage who used to keep the plate spinning, running around, keeping all those plates spinning is kind of cool. But that's what we're doing with all these issues. We're ready to work a little bit here. Oh, wait a minute, got to do this over here, and we're just kind of running around. Well, here's a very, very important point with these issues. These issues are not wrong because they're problematic. Oh, they're causing problems, so I guess we'll say they're wrong. No, they're problematic because they are wrong, meaning they go against God's created order. And really, really quick message here. Some of these fall into a slightly different category, like climate change. I talked about that at the men's breakfast yesterday. It's not appropriate to say climate change is right or wrong. Climate change is climate change. Our understanding of it or our response to it might be wrong, and my personal opinion is it is wrong, but climate change is just climate change, so I don't want you to walk out saying that I said climate change was wrong. So some, again, are in a little bit different category. Another very important point. If someone brings up one of these issues, it should never be your philosophy versus theirs. Who are we that the whole world should care what we think about any of these things? Someone brings one up, you say, hold on a second, good topic. Let me see what God's word has to say about that. And if they have a problem with what you share, it's not really with you, it's with God's word. And someday they'll be accountable for that. And it's up to us to very graciously, very kindly help them understand why there's so much tension and issues with these, these topics. Because people are really, really struggling with these things. Even if you don't relate to it, that's okay. They really have struggles. We want to help them understand why it's a struggle because it's not what God intended. And we want to do that graciously. So, putting this talk together, a defense of Christianity, you can break Christianity down into two basic elements. Number one, that God exists and he's the creator of everything. <laughs> and number two, the Bible's the word of God. Those are the two most basic elements of Christianity. Everything else you can think of is going to be a subcategory of one of those two things. So we will be taking a look at both of these this morning. The Bible certainly mentions them. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we'll be taking a look at those two things. And the main focus is you can trust the Bible in most of what it says. No, you can trust the Bible in absolutely everything everything it says, cover to cover. The more we look at it, the more we're just amazed. Um, so why does this matter? If I don't answer this question, everything I share after this will just be trivia. It'll be cool, but it'll be trivia. Here's why this matters. Because origin determines purpose. The origin of something determines its purpose. If I showed you this piece of equipment, most of you would probably not know what it's used for. But if you knew who the manufacturer was who made it, they could tell you what it was and what they made it for, what its purpose is. It's actually called a proximity probe. It measures vibration in large industrial equipment. First job out of college, I worked on these things. The point is the origin of that thing determines what its purpose is. It's the same thing with all of us here this morning. Your origin determines your purpose. If you really believe that the universe came about through something like a Big Bang, there's no purpose for the Big Bang. I know a lot of religious people and even a lot of Christians 
say, well, God used the Big Bang. I mean, someone had to start it, so that's how God created the universe. It sounds great on the surface, but if you do any research at all, uh, it doesn't fit. That's a whole other talk. I have a series of talks on that. We'll be scratching the surface on that this morning in just a second. The scientist who drafted the Big Bang did it to try to explain the origin universe apart from God. So when we say God did that, they're like, you don't understand this. We don't need you. We don't need your God. And they say there's no purpose for the Big Bang. It's just something that happened. And if you're part of that universe... There's no purpose for your life either. You can make up a purpose. Oh, I, you're going to save the spotted owl. Great. What does that do for you when you're on your deathbed? <laughs> Nothing really. Here's a quote from Dr. William Provine. He was also from Cornell University. He said, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells loud and clear. And I must say that these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purposeful forces of any kind, no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain I'm going to be completely dead. That's just all. That's going to be the end of me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. Very depressing outlook, but very consistent with an atheistic worldview. And he was an atheist. Here's a quote from Stephen Hawking. He was arguably the world's leading theoretical physicist, died a few years ago. Truly brilliant scientist. He really was. He was an atheist. This is what he believed. The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among 100 billion galaxies. We are so insignificant that I can't believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. We are each free to believe what we want, and it is my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe, and no one directs our fates. This leads me to a profound realization. There probably is no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that I am extremely grateful. I could do a whole series just on this quote. I'm just going to pull out two things this morning. Number one, he appreciates the grand design. Do you see a problem with that? How do you have design if there's no designer? He didn't believe in a designer, but he could see the design. Secondly, he's extremely grateful. To whom or what? To particles for having banged together just right so his particles could appreciate all the other particles? That makes no sense, but that was his view as an atheist. So there's no purpose to the Big Bang. Now, if you believe this universe was designed, there would be a purpose for the universe. And if you're part of that universe, there would be a purpose for your life as well. And I came up with an analogy. I like analogies because they help teach basic truths. If you walked into a room and you saw this cake sitting on a pedestal, you would instantly know somebody made that cake. You might not even consciously think that, but you just know right away. You can get up to a closer and see how many layers there are, what kind of frosting was used. It would further confirm somebody made the cake. But you could look at those details all day long, and they would never tell you who made the cake, why they made the cake, what they want you to do with the cake, and what they want you to do when you're done doing whatever they want you to do with the cake. You can't get that from looking at the physical details. But the creator of the cake left you a note, then you could know. You might say, hi, my name is Susie, I made the cake for you, have a piece, and then just walk away, I'll clean up when you're done. You could know that if the creator of the cake left you a note. That's the same thing with our universe. There's so much evidence that this world we're living in is not an accident. It was designed, and I gave lots of talks on that. But you could look at those details all day long, all lifelong, and they would never tell you who made it, why they made it, what they want from you, and what happens to you when you die. You can't get that from looking at dirt and DNA. 
But if the creator of the universe left you a note, then you could know. And that's what the Bible claims to be. It claims to be a note from the God who's saying, hello, I'm the one who created this. This is what happened to it. This is my plan to fix it. And here's what happens to you when you die. You could know that if the creator left you a note. Now, I could write a book tonight making all those claims. I just couldn't back it up. But the Bible can back it up, and we'll be getting to that in the second half of the talk this morning. So we're going to first talk about creation, then we'll talk about the Bible, and I'm going to perform a miracle, and I'm going to cover the origin of the universe, origin of life, and origin of species in less than half of one talk. <laughs> and we're scratching the surface here. Starting out talking about the origin of the universe, just thinking this through. What is the standard story about how the universe got here? The Big Bang. That's what we learn in public school systems, state universities. The Big Bang is not a good scientific model for the origin of the universe. It is covered with band-aids. It's on life support. Why? Because they don't have anything else to replace it with yet. As soon as they find something, this will go away so fast it'll make your head spin. But they got to keep it going for now. It's a whole other series of talks. I've got some videos that we just posted for free on our website. Um, you can see more details. I did a four-part podcast series on this. Um, there's one thing about the Big Bang that's kind of interesting. It doesn't explain the origin of the universe. What? No, it doesn't even kick in until you, after you have what you need. The Big Bang is just a description of how after something got here, it expanded. <laughs> it's not even a force or anything. It's just a description. So that, that's part of a whole other talk here. Stephen Hawking, again, the theoretical physicist, he had to explain how do you get something out of nothing? Like how do you get everything out of nothing if there's no God? Here was his answer. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now, do you really want to debate the world's leading theoretical physicist? Probably not. Let's forget about how smart he was, and he was brilliant, and just think about what he said. I'm going to reword this slightly as we reread this. Because there is something, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Wait a minute. If you have something, you don't have nothing. And what was the something he mentioned? The law of gravity. What is the law of gravity? It's not a physical thing that you can take into a laboratory and weigh and paint and bend. It's a description of how the universe operates. But you can't have a description of how the universe operates unless you have a universe to describe. But if you have a universe to describe, you are not creating it out of nothing. It's already there. So here's a statement from a truly brilliant scientist that makes no sense. Even other atheists called him out on that. Um, so let's think through this further. Nothing created everything. That's what they teach us science in every public school and state university. Everything came from nowhere. Well, if you push them far enough, they will admit that. Well, the Big Bang came from the singularity. That's something. That's not nothing. Well, where did the singularity come from? Well, it came from a, a fluctuation in the quantum vacuum. Okay, well, that's something too. Where did that come from? Well, okay, yeah, that, that came from nothing. So they will admit that everything came from nothing, and that's science. If you dare to say that you think that something created everything, oh, thank you for bringing that up, because, see, now that's a religious concept, and we can't have that in the schools, separation of church and state. All right, let's use our brains and think through this further. Nothing created everything. It's never been observed. Science is all about observation. If you can't observe it, it's not scientific. We've never seen nothing create anything whatsoever. And it goes against the laws of science. Now, particularly one of the best laws we have in science, the first law of thermodynamics, which says you can't get something out of nothing, and it's completely illogical. How can nothing do anything? Nothing is nothing but nothing. That's why we call it nothing. 
Now let's take a look at the idea that something created everything. It's been observed. We've seen something create something else. You have all created things. It's consistent with the laws of science, and it's completely logical that something could actually do something. So in reality, the idea that nothing created everything, that's more like a religion or a blind faith. Whereas the idea that something created everything is consistent with everything we know about science. <laughs> so moving on, that was the origin of the universe, origin of life. I don't have time to cover, cover the Miller-Urey experiment in the 1950s and all that. Very interesting. It's part of another series of talks. We have time for one question. <laughs> and that is, what are the chances that somehow dead chemicals came together just right to form a living cell? The number I'm going to give you comes from Sir Frederick Hoyle. He was one of the world's leading astronomers and mathematicians. He was an atheist for most of his life. He said that the chances that dead chemicals could come together to form a living cell was just one chance in... Now, I have a question for you <laughs> before I give you the number. What's your cutoff? What does that mean? If you find out the chances are less than one chance in some number, you're going to decide, okay, yeah, that's not an accident. There's no way that would happen. Well, what's your number? If you don't come up with a number, nothing I share will have any meaning. You have to have some criteria. So for argument's sake, let's say you throw out a really big number. If there's less than one chance in 10 million billion... <laughs> then you're going to say, okay, yeah, I just don't think that could happen on its own. That's your number. Okay, what was Sir Frederick Hoyle's number? He said one chance in 10 raised to the 40,000th power. <laughs> that is a one with 40,000 zeros after it. Is that number bigger than your massive number? Well, a little bit. It's your number, 10 million billion times 10 million billion times 10 million billion, times 10 million billion, two and a half thousand times you have to take your number, multiply it by itself to get his number. But at this point, it's big, but you have no clue of how big it really is. So another analogy. Most of you have probably played with a Rubik's Cube. The rest of you would be lying. Um, a Rubik's Cube has a lot of different combinations to it. In fact, it has 10 million trillion combinations, and only one is correct. So if you're blindfolded, someone hands you the cube and you're spinning it randomly, you have one chance in 10 million trillion of getting it right. No sane person says, oh, I could do that, piece of cake. We all realize it's not going to happen. So let's compare solving that cube by accident to this big number Sir Frederick Hoyle gave us. It'd be like me handing you the cube, putting the blindfold on. You start spinning it away randomly and you solve that cube 2,105 times in a row getting it right every single time. Is that ever going to happen? No, not even close. So why do we teach in every public school and every state university? Life formed 3.8 billion years ago when dead chemicals came together just right to form a living cell. I love that story. There's just no science behind it. The more we look at it, the further away they get from figuring out how it probably happened, because it couldn't happen. Here's a quote from an evolutionist. He said, the belief that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter is simply a matter of faith. Wait a minute, scientists don't have faith. They're in the laboratory proving things, right? No, he's saying they have faith. And not only is it a faith, it is a blind, unreasonable faith because it goes against everything that we're learning in science. Last subcategory of creation, the origin of species. This one's really tough because I give hours and hours and hours and hours of lectures in this area. But this is as simple as I could make it looking at the big picture. The idea of evolution would predict and require things to be going uphill over time, getting better and better, more and more complex over time. That's what would we expect if evolution were true. If creation is true, we'd expect and predict the opposite. God created everything perfect. 
But Adam and Eve sinned. That brought death and a curse into his perfect creation, and things have been going downhill over time. Those are the two predictions. Now, within the creation model, can you still create a variety of animals? Yeah, you could still have that scenario even in the creation uh, narrative. But there would be limits. So you can breed dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and wolves today. They can all breed together, but you're not going to get an ostrich out of that <clears throat> because there are specific genetic limits, and that's what we see. Those are the two expectations. Let's see what we actually see. Evolution, again, predicts 3.8 billion years ago, dead chemicals came alive in a living cell, and that living cell turned itself into every other living organism on the planet over hundreds of millions and millions and millions and a few billion years. Okay, what's the source of information to take a single cell and turn it into all these other life forms, particularly a human being? Single cell is very complex, but it has a lot less information than humans do. So if you're going to turn that into a human, you've got to add information all along the way, tons of it. Okay. Where does that information come from? Well, they talk about two different things, typically. Natural selection and mutations. So let's take a look at these, thinking through it. Can they provide new information? <laughs> natural selection. We call that survival of the fittest. Guess what? Natural selection does a great job of explaining the survival of the fittest. Why do some survive when others don't? But it, what it cannot explain is the arrival of the fittest. <laughs> How do we get creatures to begin with? It explains very well why some die out, but it can't create anything. It's just a description. And scientists know that. They know a natural selection absolutely cannot create anything new. It's not a force. It's a description of why are certain things going by the wayside. So you're not getting new information from there. So that leaves us with mutations, and I have quotes in other talks saying, yep, mutations are the only game in town. Mutations create the new information required by evolution. What's a mutation? You get the DNA up there. When creatures reproduce, they copy their DNA and pass it on to the offspring. And there's so much information in the DNA, they, they make copying errors once in a while. That's a mutation. It's an accidental copying error. So they're saying by taking information and copying it wrong, it's going to make things better and better and better over time. Ultimately, that's what they believe. So let's take a look at this. This is a little technical, but you, I think you'll be able to follow this. This is called the waiting time problem. How long would you have to wait for these mutations to create the information you need? This is a technical article that was published by creationists. Um, it's very, very, very powerful evidence against evolution. So here's the scenario. How long do we have to wait for copying errors to create all the new information we need? Um, we're not going to look at t turning a single cell into every other life form on this planet. We're going to narrow it down to a portion of this evolutionary tree, the human branch, how an ape-like creature branched off into chimps and into humans. <laughs> we're going to look at how long would it take to get the information just for that part of the tree. And evolutionists tell us it took six million years for an ape-like creature to evolve into down two branches into apes and gorillas and all that, and then chimpanzees and and then you got the hominoids and ape men and then the modern man, that thing. Six million years. Well, today there are about 300 million differences between humans and chimps. So at the end of those branches, you've got humans and chimps. There's at least 300 million differences in our DNA. So if you look at the DNA like a ladder, 300 million rungs on that ladder are different. It's probably more like 600 million, but we'll be conservative. 300 million differences. So that's what we need to do. Over a six million year period, we have to come up with 300 million differences. And this isn't just differences, generic differences. I could go to a book today and make tons of changes to it. 
That's a piece of cake. These have to be positive changes, related changes so that they can build together, coordinated in the same place, in the same species that they can continue on in the genetic code. <laughs> so that's our target. We got six million years to work with and we have to come up with 300 million positive related changes. So <laughs> the scientists that I work with created a software system to see is that possible. It mimics what actually happens in living things when they reproduce. And they asked the system, how long would it take to get two changes? We're going to need 300 million. How long would it take to get two? Now, changing two rungs on the ladder, they're called nucleotides, um, doesn't really do anything. It's a, it's a start. So how long would it take to get two changes? How about 84 million years to get two? Then they asked, how long would it take to get eight? Changing eight nucleotides, eight rungs on that ladder, would be equivalent to like making the English word yes. <laughs> If you saw the word yes sitting somewhere, would you think, oh, I almost have all the information I need to make a nuclear reactor? No, you got a little tiny piece of information there. That's what this would be. How long would it take to get eight changes? 18 and a half billion years. They tell us, I don't buy into it, but they tell us the universe is 13.8 billion years old. It would take 18 and a half billion years just to get eight changes, and that's nothing. They need 300 million. So summarizing this whole thing, We'll give them 3,000 times the time they want. They want 6 million years, we'll give them 18 and a half billion years, and they can still only come up with 0.000027% of what they need. It's not going to happen. Mutations will never give you the volumes, the astronomical volumes that you would need for evolution. So that was very quickly, God is the creator of the universe. Again, scratching the surface, just thinking this through logically. We will next focus on the Bible being the inspired word of God, that note from God. This is interesting. Most people have an opinion of the Bible based on what somebody else told them about it. They haven't really studied it themselves, but they know, they know that the Bible is filled with errors and contradictions. There's missing portions, extra stuff that got shoved in there. It's been disproved by science and on and on and on. Well, if that was true, yeah, who would bother reading it or believing it? And that's what they quote, no. Because someone else told them that, and they like that because now they don't have to worry about what it even says. But they haven't really studied it themselves. And I've had skeptics tell me, there's no evidence that God wrote the Bible. And if someone ever says something like that to you, you can have a response, which is the response that I have now, and I always do it very graciously because we're dealing with a spiritual issue, not an academic debate. But when they say there's no evidence that God wrote the Bible, I say, okay, I have a question for you. What would you accept as evidence? that God wrote the Bible. If you saw A, B, or C, yeah, that would definitely be evidence that God wrote that. And they say, well, I don't know, but I know there's no evidence. Wait a minute, if by your own admission, you don't even know what the evidence would look like, how do you know it doesn't exist? In fact, if you don't have criteria that you use to judge what counts as evidence and what doesn't count, we can't even have this conversation. Again, they're making a bold claim with really nothing to back it up. Well. How would we know if God actually wrote a book? You can even forget about the Bible for a second. If God actually wrote a book, there's a book out there somewhere that God wrote. How would you know? Well, I would expect at least four things to be characteristic of that book if God actually authored it. I'd expect it to be internally consistent, meaning it doesn't contradict itself. If it does, I don't think God would write that. It would be historically accurate. If it gets history wrong, I'm thinking, God couldn't have authored that. God would know history. He knows everything. 
It would be prophetically accurate if it makes predictions about the future. If they've been proven false, I'd say, God didn't write that. He would know the future. And it would be scientifically accurate. If it makes statements that can actually be tested by science directly, and it's been proven false, and we can all see that, I'd say, that's pretty strong evidence. God didn't write that because he would know science. So I'm going to look at three of these four very, very briefly. I have a whole five-part series that's free. I'll tell you about that at the end. Um, we're just look, scratch the surface on three of these four. Internal consistency. Why is that evidence that God authored the Bible and inspired these writers? Well, another analogy. Let's say we have two men, and here's their background. They're both born and raised in Dallas, Texas. They're the same age. They were born in 1950. They have PhDs in U.S. history. They're both professors of U.S. history. They teach at the same university, and English is their native language. These guys are basically identical. And now you give these guys one controversial topic to write about, a 300-page research paper on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. <laughs> Would these two guys agree in every detail they wrote? <laughs> Not hardly. But that's just one event that happened in their city, in their lifetime, and they are experts in U.S. history. And they wouldn't even agree with each other. Compare that to the Bible. The Bible has about 40 authors of all different backgrounds, written over a period of 1,600 years on three different continents, in three different languages, in different settings, at different times. And it doesn't cover just one controversial topic. It covers hundreds of controversial topics, yet all the authors agree with each other. How is that possible unless God is actually inspiring each and every writer? Uh, next one we're going to look at, prophetic accuracy. This is actually probably the strongest evidence <laughs> or category of evidence for inspiration of Scripture. Some of you remember Yogi Berra. <laughs> he was you know, famous uh, for just a lot of the crazy things he said. He's either brilliant or crazy. I, I think he was probably brilliant, just acting like he was crazy. But one of the things he said is, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> it's like, that's a yogiism, <laughs> kind of funny. But it is tough. Because you don't know the future. So most people who make predictions, most are just wildly wrong. A few are kind of close. Once in a great while, it's like, wow, they were right. But yeah, what about the hundred things they were wrong about? Here's the Bible's prophetic content. There are over 8,000 passages in the Bible making over 1,800 predictions covering 700 topics. That means 27% of our Bibles are prophetic in nature. You won't find any other book on the planet that comes even close to that. And the Bible has a 100% track record. Some of the prophecies are for our future yet. The rest have come true in every minute detail. How is that possible? Unless God is telling these guys what to write. Just one example we have time for, we're talking about the city of Tyre. If you look at map, find Israel. You go north of Israel and Lebanon. It's right on the Mediterranean coast. A fascinating place, one of the most ancient and prosperous cities in history. What did Ezekiel prophesy about this city? We're going to shortcut it and just look at the highlighted words that come up. It specifically names King Nebuchadnezzar. He says he's going to come from the north and attack the city of Tyre. That's what the Bible predicted. Guess what happened in history? King Nebuchadnezzar came from the north and attacked the city of Tyre. The Bible got that right. It said many nations would come up against the city of Tyre. Guess what happened in history? Many nations came up against the city of Tyre, including all of these. We know that to be a fact. The Bible was right about that. It also said, I will scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It goes on to say, they shall lay thy stones on thy timbers and thy dust in the midst of the water. So it said when they would come to attack the city, they would not just attack the people, but they would actually knock down all the buildings and scrape all the rubble and throw it into the sea. 
that's crazy. Why would you do that? Yeah, kill some people, torture them, whatever, burn some things, knock some things over and be done. Why would you take all the time and the effort to scrape all that and throw it into the sea? It makes no sense, but that's exactly what happened in history because Alexander the Great came in to attack the people, but some had escaped to a nearby island, and he couldn't build big enough ships to float armies out there. So he took all the rubble from the city that had been knocked down and threw it into the sea to build a bridge to march over there and attack them. And if you look at Google Earth today, you can see that the sediments have built in. It's not even an island anymore. It's connected to the mainland because of what Alexander the Great did. The Bible got that right. It also said it shall be built no more and it shall be found or not established again. And that city has not been reestablished. The island that was sticking out there, you'll see they call that Tyre. That's not the original city. They're just using the same name in a different location. But the original city was never rebuilt because the Bible predicted that. We get this from Columbia Encyclopedia. The principal ruins of the city today are those built uh, erected by the Crusaders. There are some Greco-Roman remains, but any left by the Phoenicians lie underneath the present town. It was never rebuilt because the Bible predicted that. Even though it was a bizarre prediction, the Bible is correct. So the Bible passes the test of prophecy. Lastly, it passes the test of scientific accuracy, which we also call scientific foreknowledge. What does that mean? Well, the Bible was written a long time ago. Old Testament, roughly 1500 to 400 BC. New Testament, roughly 40 to about 100 AD. Long before we had microscopes and telescopes. But there are things in there that scientists are seeing and they're thinking, whoa, those guys were right. But they couldn't have known those things back then. And that's true. There's no way they could have known that on their own, which is evidence that God was telling them what to write. But the skeptical say, well, no real scientist believes the Bible. <laughs> Truth is, most major areas of science we have today were founded by Bible-believing Christians. If you'd like a few examples, I brought a few along. <laughs> We have antiseptic surgery, bacteriology, calculus, chemistry, computer science, electronics, electrodynamics, electromagnetics, fluid mechanics, galactic astronomy, gas dynamics, genetics, <laughs> hydraulics, hydrostatics, oceanography, optical mineralogy, paleontology, pathology, physical astronomy, stratigraphy, thermodynamics, thermokinetics, vertebrate paleontology, and a scientific method, all founded by Bible-believing Christians. <laughs> Anyone who says that no real scientist believes the Bible, they don't only not understand science, they don't even know history. This is where science came from, was birthed out of the Christian community. So here's an example. I, sh I think I did share this in one of the talks I gave last time. It's good for repeat. If you haven't heard this before, this is worth the price of admission. This is going to blow you away. It's going to make you smile the rest of the day. Exodus 15, 26, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, I will put none of these diseases upon thee. All right, what's going on? This is cool. Here's the big picture. God creates everything. It's perfect. Creates Adam and Eve. They're perfect. They sin, they disobey God. They separate themselves from their creator. God could have just smashed them and started over. But he said, no, I love them too much, I got a plan. He's going to send his own son to die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. The entire Old Testament is God playing out that plan, which included God choosing a group of people through which his son, the Messiah, would be born. Those are the Hebrew people, Abraham's offspring, the Hebrews, who become the Israelites and the Jews. The entire Old Testament is also Satan who hates God trying to ruin that plan. So the entire Old Testament is Satan trying to wipe out the Jews because if he can, the Messiah can't come. And God's trying to protect his people. In this passage, Moses is saying, listen to the health practices that God is giving us and we won't see the diseases that are affecting the nations around us. 
But we know from the book of Acts that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He went to Egypt, you. Now today, if someone goes to a state university, get a PhD, and then they write some books, you would expect a lot of the information in those books probably came from what they learned at the university. That's, that's how it works. Well, Moses goes to Egypt, you, and then he writes five books. You may have written his book, or read, read his books. <laughs> yeah, the first five books of the Bible. So do we see Egyptian wisdom in the Bible? We should if Moses made it up on his own, and that's what skeptics say. He was an ignorant goat herder. He's just making some stuff up, and now we have another religious option out there. Let's take a look at Egyptian wisdom. This is the Ebers Papyrus, written about 1550 B.C. contains over 800 magical formulas and remedies, one of which is if you got a splinter, you were supposed to apply worm blood and donkey dung. Modern scientists say, yikes, you don't want to do that. It's terrible. It causes tetanus spores, you can get lockjaw, you can get very sick. You could even die. That's the kind of stuff Moses was educated in. So do we see things like that in the Bible? We should if he made it up on his own. Let's take a look at what we actually see from Moses. Moses talked about touching a dead body. Now today we know about, you know, germ theory and bacteria. You, you don't want to touch a dead animal. You could get sick from that. You maybe could die. This is what Moses wrote in the book of Numbers, chapter 19. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. He must wash themselves in the water of purification on the third day and the seventh day, and then he'll be clean. Okay, what's this water of purification? A few verses earlier, he tells us. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet one, throw them on the burning heifer or cow. That sounds bizarre. Many of you are old enough to remember the Beverly Hillbillies. It sounds like something Granny would come up with in the kitchen, put some possum in a pot and stir it around. She was always doing weird things. That's what this sounds like from Moses. But modern scientists say that's not weird at all. That's fascinating, and here's why. The cedar wood and burning heifer ashes combine to make lye. That's a caustic soda. We call it soap. <laughs> you touch a dead body, washing with soap would be a good thing. The hyssop plant converts into thiamol, which is isopropyl alcohol. Kills bacteria. <laughs> you touch a dead body, killing bacteria would come in handy. The scarlet wool forms a gritty substance like an SOS pad in your kitchen or orange goop has pumice in it. It's very abrasive. can help scour and get that stuff out. And then applying it on the third and the seventh day, bacteria grow very well in a damp environment. So you want to wait for it to dry out. Then you apply this. Wait for it to dry out again, and you apply it a second time, and you're considered clean. Modern scientists say that is a great natural remedy if you don't have antibiotics. Now, did Moses know anything about bacteria and germ theory and isopropyl alcohol? Obviously not. This is evidence that God said, hey, Mo, I want you to write some things down. <coughs> some of you got that. And so Moses writes it down. And then Moses said, that's awesome. You got anything else? And God says, let me think. Yeah, I got, I got another one. So as I close, I'll give you one more example here. Moses talked about a certain Jewish tradition in Genesis 17. He says, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Why did Moses say the eighth day? could have said anything. The fifth week, the sixth year, anything. He said the eighth day. Modern scientists have discovered some fascinating things about blood clotting. There are two major elements in your bloodstream that are necessary <coughs> to clot your blood. If you can't clot your blood, you're dead. You've got vitamin K and prothrombin. On a molecular level, there are actually about two dozen events that have to fire off in proper sequence. You miss one, you die. Event A has to trigger B, B triggers C, C triggers D on the online. How did that evolve? 
by accident, making mistakes in the DNA, and some creature doesn't have any of those things, and now it accidentally has A, great, doesn't do anything, can't survive. A, B, and C, great, doesn't do anything. A, B, C, D, F, G, doesn't do anything. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, R, R, W, A, A, no. Two dozen in a row. Back to the bigger picture, though. Vitamin K and prothrombin. Modern scientists have discovered vitamin K develops in a newborn somewhere between days five and seven. And prothrombin looks like this. We graph it. I will explain the graph. The dotted line across the top represents the normal level of prothrombin in your body. The numbers across the bottom represent days after birth. Scientists have discovered on day one, a baby has about 90% of its prothrombin. That's pretty high. That's not bad. But then it drops dangerously low between days two and five to only 30%. That's not good. On day eight, it spikes to 110% of its normal level. It will never be that high again the rest of your entire life, only on day eight. So if you are a baby and you need a surgical procedure, day eight would be the perfect day because for sure you have vitamin K, and you have more prothrombin than you'll ever have the rest of your life. Did Moses know anything about vitamin K and prothrombin? Obviously not. God said, Mo, write it down. He writes it down. Uh, really quick, my, my wife and I have two children, 25 and 27. Our son, firstborn, when she was pregnant with him, we went to the hospital to go to the birthing classes because this was all new to us. And the nurse said, if you have a baby boy and like the procedure done, we'll take him down the hall and bring him back. I was very nervous, thinking, shouldn't we come back on day eight? But I was too shy to say anything. <laughs> So the nurse kept speaking. Someone else raised their hand and said, hey, nurse, you said you're giving the baby a shot. The baby's just born. Why does it need a shot right away? She goes, oh, that's vitamin K. So today they artificially introduced vitamin K on day one, and you have 90% of your prothrombin. It's not an issue. When I heard that, my hand went up on its own as I get back here. And she called on me, and I shared with the entire class what Moses wrote in Genesis about all this. I don't know if they were impressed or not, but it was an opportunity to talk about the inspiration of Scripture. So the Bible passes the test of scientific accuracy. In fact, it passes all four tests of internal consistency, historical accuracy, prophetic accuracy, and scientific accuracy. So do Christians have faith that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Yes, we do. And it's an incredibly reasonable faith backed up by so much evidence. We just scratched the surface. Even though the Bible is God's first shot at writing a book, I think he did a pretty good job. <laughs> If you want to believe the Bible is not the inspired Word of God, in the immortal words of Ricky Ricardo, you got a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> Seriously, if, they, if a bunch of guys made this up, how do you get people living on three different continents, writing in three different languages, living over a 1,600-year period to agree in everything they talk about? How do you get all the prophecy in here right? Over 8,000 passages. How do you get all the science? And on and on and on. It, it doesn't, I don't have enough faith to think they made this up. It makes a lot more sense. It is what it claims to be. And again, the takeaway is you can trust the Bible cover to cover in absolutely everything that it says. So that was a whirlwind tour very quickly. As I'm winding down here, I used to hate to talk about our resources, but now almost everything we have is free. So very quickly, um, we've got 22, soon to be 28 streaming videos. You'll see physical DVDs sitting out there. We don't sell those anymore. Those are old school. A lot of people don't even have DVD players. So we converted everything to streaming and made them free. So you'll, you'll see close to 28 right now. If you go on the website, you have access, free access, including a five-part series on this inspirational scripture where I go into a lot more detail. And then next week, I'm making six more. So then we'll have 34 videos, and then I'm going to make another six. And we just keep adding. Those are all free. I started a podcast about 11 weeks ago. You can go to our website, 
Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you'll find Starting Point Podcast. Those are all free. I think there's about 11 episodes out there right now. And every week, every Friday, I do a new one. We have a monthly email newsletter. You can sign up on the table or on the website. Um, also, I write a question of the month article, and you get it in the newsletter, or you can go to our website and see them all archived, all the past articles. Those are all free. I did a lot of live stream broadcasts in the past. We've archived all those on the website. Those are all free. I wrote a pocket-sized guide. It's a front and back thing. It's sitting on the table out there. Inspiration of the scripture. The four categories I just went over, they're all printed on this little pocket-sized thing, and you have one example evidence in each of those categories. So those are free on the table out there. So tons of free things. The only thing that we sell are the three books that I wrote because it costs us a fair amount to, to produce them, but we've even discounted those. You can get all three for 30 bucks. And if you become a monthly donor, which I'm not here to try to get donors, but we don't charge anything. 38 years, I've never charged a penny for anything I've done. Uh, we rely on monthly donors. So if, if God puts it on your heart, we'll give you the books for free just as a thank you for becoming a donor. And then lastly, the church has been promoting a Grand Canyon tour, August 10th through the 13th. I'm going to show you a quick promo. I'll close in prayer, and then I'll be out in the lobby afterwards. But this will give you a visual idea of what the, the tour is like. It's absolutely fantastic, and it'll fire you up in your face. So here's the promo video. Welcome to the Grand Canyon. You've all seen pictures. Come and see the real thing. Jay Sigurd here with the Starting Point Project to invite you to come along on one of our Grand Canyon tours where you will be on the top rim of the canyon looking down and you'll also get to be on the Colorado River. And all throughout our trip, we share scientific evidences that there really was a worldwide flood, just like we learned from Genesis 6 through 8. We know there was worldwide flood action, but not always the same way you see here. We want to take you from being in a position where you are praying and hoping that no one asks you about this flood story and Noah's Ark and all that to a point where you're thinking, please, please ask me. Just learning about the creation theory and being able to really be equipped to defend that theory. A chance to learn a little bit more about just what God's done in the past and uh, his beautiful world that he created. The only explanation for the canyon is really catastrophic water action. Easy to understand, but yet profound. It helps me to articulate what I believe so much better. You'll be so excited about the authority of God's word that it can be trusted from cover to cover so that you can be more emboldened when you're graciously sharing the gospel message with those around you. The problem isn't the evidence because facts don't speak for themselves. What was your favorite part? The dinosaur tracks. Dinosaur tracks? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's unbelievable. You have to see it in person. It is an amazing place to visit, and we want to go on this journey with you, so get a hold of us to learn about the details of our trips, which you can find at thestartingpointproject.com. So very quickly, just very family-friendly trip. You're not you're climbing up rocks or it's not whitewater rafting. Uh, in fact, very quickly, I'm going to put up if, to register. There's been a little bit of confusion. My assistant will register you over the phone. We don't have a form online. Here's a phone number you can call. We also have information on the table you can grab as well, but that would be the phone number to save a spot. Again, family-friendly, just walking flat paved paths. It's, it's 
perfectly smooth sailing. Uh, it's easy to get around. So if you want more information, you can contact us. But that's how you would register. And again, on the table, you can get further information on that, including one of our brochures. So with that, I've covered a lot. And I appreciate you being a captive audience. I guess you didn't have a cho uh, choice. It's Sunday morning. so. But appreciate you putting up with me talking a lot faster than you'd probably like. I wasn't here to have you memorize all these details. I just want to get you fired up in the authority of God's word so you can in turn go out and win arguments with people and make them look foolish, right? No. <laughs> to in turn go out and very graciously share the gospel message knowing if they bring up tough questions, answers exist, even if you don't have them memorized. So with that, I will close in a brief word of prayer and look forward to seeing you in the lobby afterwards. And if you're sticking around for Sunday school, you're going to learn a lot about dinosaurs, things that you've never even heard before. It'll blow you away. So uh, dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time we've had to take a look at the authority of your word. I thank you for each person here this morning. We pray that you would be giving them opportunities this coming week to share the gospel message with the lost and dying world. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.